when God made us, we saw this back in our study of Genesis. We see this all over the place in Scripture. When He made us, He made us to, to worship. He, 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 our hearts are hardwired for this. Down to the very core of our being, this is, this is what we are made for. If we don't worship the one true God, we will worship uh, God's substitutes, what we call idols. Um, my uh, brother and sister-in-law, Nate and Barbie Sprinkle, Brooke's sister and her husband, their family, they, they served for many years in Southeast Asia, most of that time in Nepal. And they would share stories and they would have photographs and, and videos that they would share with us of, of idol makers in, in Kathmandu and in their city that they lived in. And so these metal workers creating these little man-made idols. And it just, it just seems so foreign to my mind. But I think about those images. I think about those stories. And I think about a quote from a great reformer, John Calvin. And he, he said this, that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. You get that? So, so it's not just that we can go to Nepal and visit idol makers, idol factories, but, but our very hearts are continually pumping out these idols wreaking, that, that, that are wreaking havoc on our souls and upon our world. And so as we talked about last week, our idols are not generally you know, made of metal or, or uh, plaster of Paris or, or marble or anything like that. They're, they're probably not statues we bow down to every night before we go to bed or every morning when we wake up. No, our idols are those things that we live for and we cannot live without. And so Tim Keller, he calls them our functional saviors. They're, they're those created things that take the place of God in our hearts. And so as we come to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14 and following this morning, we're coming to as clear a command as you might find in the New Testament. He says in verse 14, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. But I fear that maybe we as Americans, we... We, we, may, we, we think we've outgrown such a primitive and pagan issue like idolatry. And so that, that tap, tap, tap of the, of the metal worker's hammer on, on the tin and fashioning this idol, that, that, is, that seems as foreign to us as Kathmandu is. And so, but we, so we think we're exempt from this issue, from this command, but we're not. And we saw this last week. So Remember the context of where we find ourselves in chapter 10. So chapters 8 through 10, it's this extended section where, where Paul's now coming to the end of the subject he's been dealing with since chapter 8. And so it was this very difficult issue, a very difficult question for Christians there in Corinth. And the, and the question was this, should Christians go to pagan temples and eat meals? That was the big question. And so it sounds like a no-brainer. Like, why is this so complicated? Why? Of course not. This is easy. But this was a very, very common and normal part of life for these people in the ancient world. This was this would be like us going out to eat at a restaurant or something like that, essentially. So pretty much any meat that they ate, it came from animals that had been sacrificed to, to idols and temples. And so the priests were basically the butchers of the day. So all of these animals brought to these pagan temples that, are, that have been erected to these gods. And so these animals were sacrificed to the god of that temple. And, and afterwards, that, that meat was then sold in markets to the people so that they could fix it and prepare it and eat it in their homes. We'll talk about that next week. But also, people would come to the temple and eat their meals there together. And so the, these meals were very ordinary. So they weren't overtly religious occasions generally. And so the temple was, was kind of like the, the community center of the day. And so you had, you know, cultural holidays that were celebrated there. You had 
you know, trade guilds and, 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 and craftsmen unions that would hold meetings there. You would have uh, you know, uh, social clubs and philosophical societies and athletic teams that would meet there and have meals together in, in these temples, in these pagan temples. So it was just a very normal thing for people of the city to gather at the temple and meet and eat together. And so the, the meat had, again, been first sacrificed to God, and then they would eat that meat in the temple within that God's temple. And so what the Christians in Corinth were asking Paul was, should we go to these meals? Well, to be clear, many in Corinth were, were saying, Paul, stop telling us not to go to the meals. <laughs> Mind your own business. We, we're fine. And so you can imagine the possible scenarios, though. Just put yourself in the shoes of some of these Corinthian Christians. And so you're born and raised <laughs> in this cultural context where, where this is so normal, just, just normal. And now Christ, though, has saved you. You are a new creation. You are a Christian now. So you are a Christian and you are a carpenter. And, and every month or every year, your, your fellow carpenters and your guild, they come together and they have this meal at, at the temple, at the temple of, of Apollo, for instance, and right smack dab in the middle of the city. And, and you gather together with all your co-workers for this, this big guild dinner. And, and so the question, should you go? Should you stay away now that you're a Christian? It would be very, very difficult for you socially if you decided not to go and participate in these meals. You'd be cutting yourself off from, from a lot of community and civic life. It would, be, it would be embarrassing and awkward at least. <clears throat> it would be honestly quite offensive to, to those others, uh, others if, you, if you chose not to go. And so some people in the church were saying, well, we really see no harm in going then to the temple. In fact, we could see problems if we don't go. And so after all, we, we don't believe in false gods. We, we don't believe that idols are real. This, this won't affect us spiritually then. There's really nothing happening here. It's not going to do us any harm. We're fine to go. It's our right to go. And so, so, so this, is where they're, this is where they're at. Now throughout this letter and, and other issues that Paul's been dealing with in this church that was really, really in a mess, we see a couple things. One is that they are very confused. This church is full of confusion. And you add to their confusion, arrogance. That's, a, that's always a dangerous combination, uh, pride and confusion. And so they're, they're immature and they're self-confident. And so that's, that, that mix has led to this kind of fluidity of, of Christian life and worship. And so we, we, worship, we worship the Lord, uh, we worship Christ on the Lord's Day when we gather together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And then we go have some prime rib at the Temple of Diana and we meet our friends there and and no big deal. And so they just put all this together. And so this, listen, it's this no big deal attitude that Paul is so concerned about here in chapter 10. And so he builds this powerful case in this chapter here to show, no, this is a very big deal. That's what he's doing here. And so Paul's going to make the case, don't go, don't go, don't participate in these meals at the temple. Flee from idolatry have nothing to do with these occasions. Now, so we say, okay, well, what does that have to do with us? Well, let me say the issue behind their particular question about eating meals in the temple and, and that particular set of circumstances, this issue is always relevant and always applicable. And the issue is this. It's this question of unmixed loyalty to Christ. Unmixed loyalty to Christ. We've been bought by Christ. We are not our own. We have been redeemed 
by Christ, for Christ, through, his, through the cross. And so we have been claimed as his own. And so this question now of unmixed loyalty to Christ, unallied worship of Christ is a big deal. That's what Paul's getting at. And we see, so he's going to lay out some reasons why it's such a big deal. And let's walk through those quickly together. The first reason why unmixed loyalty to Christ is a big deal is this, is because the Lord's clear command is a big deal. The Lord's clear command. Look, it's in verse 14. Now, His Spirit breathed command in verse 14. It's rooted, we can recognize this in the, in the first two of the, of the, ten, great command, the ten commandments. No other gods, no idols. And so, but here in verse 14, he has this command that's crystal clear. Therefore, in light of all that's been said in chapters 8 through 9, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And look how he addresses it. My beloved. This is a term that's just dripping with endearment and love for this flock. Don't miss this. These, these Corinthians have been nothing but a pain in Paul's neck. They are, they are difficult. They are proud. They are elitist. They are self-willed. This has been consistent throughout this letter, and yet Paul has this genuine, abiding, deep, affectionate love for them. That's profound. And because he loves them, he says this to them. He gives them this command, this urgent command, flee, run for your lives. And it's, it's in the tense of this imperative in the Greek, it, it just, it's present tense, which just means it's not just a command, it's a command that's to be continually, habitually obeyed. This is to be the habit of your life, to be fleeing from idolatry, always, always, always fleeing. One commentator said, idolatry, it's like radioactive waste. It requires them to bolt from this area immediately to avoid contamination. Now again, Idolatry, what is it? It's anything that, that demands our, and we give to it, our trust, our, 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 our primary love and trust. And so, as we saw last week, anything, can be, anything in life can be raised to the status of an idol. And we used that little self-test last week to show some of those things. Now, you're going back to chapter 8, where Eric preached several, several weeks ago now, in chapter 8, verses 4 to 6, what Jim read earlier this morning. Remember these words. They were probably part of the Corinthian slogan. They basically said, there's nothing to idols. There's nothing to idols. And, there, and there's an element of truth to that. On the one hand, there's nothing to a statue. There's nothing to it. There's not, a, there's not actually a God that's behind that or in that or attached to that some way in some spiritual way. But that doesn't mean that it's okay to have idols and to, and to, 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 to worship them because they don't really mean anything. So idols in one sense are nothing, but idolatry isn't nothing. And, and, and so Paul says, no, listen, beloved, flee from idolatry. See an idol in your life, flee, run. So, so unmixed loyalty to Christ, it's a big deal. Why? Because God's command is a big deal. Second reason, because sharing in Christ is a big deal. You see this in verses 15 to 18. So there's the command in verse 14. Now Paul begins to reason with us in verses 15 and following. And there's this very tight, strong rational, compelling argument that he makes. You see verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, he could be doing a few different things here. He could be speaking sarcastically. And, and so, you, you Corinthians, you think you're so wise. So I'm addressing you as if you're sensible people. Now, one commentator, I love this sentence, but he said, Paul could be sardonically saluting their favorite self-description. 
That's good. He sardonically or cynically saluting their favorite description because they love to boast. Oh, we are so wise. We are, we are so wise and, and enlightened people. And so he may be doing that. And, and, and so, listen, Paul's not above the use of sarcasm. Now, I, I, I sometimes hear this, particularly from Christians. They'll say things like, I've, I've heard, you know, kind of Christians boast, you know, we never use sarcasm as humor in our home. And I'm, I sometimes think, oh, why not? You're missing out on so much. <laughs> there, there's, you're, you're, the, the sarcasm is some of the best humor. And because you can, you can, and in fact, it's in the Bible, but, but sarcasm can be both funny and make a point. And so that may be what Paul's doing here. Now, side note, I'm, I'm not at all suggesting that sarcasm can't be overused and overdone and that I'm not guilty of that at times. But, but it, it is a mode of communication and it has its place. But honestly, I think he's simply here. He's just affirming their basic ability to understand that which is plain. He's saying, you guys, you guys are sensible. You do have understanding. You, I'm, I'm going to lay out some very logical reasons here and, and from, to make this case. And he urges them to think, to reason this out. And he's going to carefully lay out this case that these meals are not just meals. These meals are actually a very big deal. There's more going on than simply eating and drinking around a table with friends at the, at the temple. He, a, a meal in a context like this is never just a meal. And so notice how he builds his argument. He's like, he's like a boxer. He, he kind of throws a couple jabs that are setting up a big uppercut that, that's coming. And so he, he, he uses a couple examples here that set up this powerful conclusion in verse 20. So his first argument is the Lord's Supper, verse 16 and 17. So he reaches for the central core part of Christian life and worship, our life together as Christians, to, to prove his point that a meal in a religious context like this is never just an ordinary meal. And so he's saying here, you take, for example, our Christian meal, the Lord's Supper. Is it just a meal? Is it just the time to fill our bellies? Is it just time to hang out with friends and, and eat, eat together? Is that all that's going on? And, and of course, the answer is no. No, nobody thinks like that. It's, it's this occasion filled with profound spiritual significance for the church. It's a meal, but it's much, much more than, quote, just a meal. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? That, that's that word, koinonia, fellowship, sharing in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He's saying this meal is loaded with, with spiritual significance. It, now the wine is still wine, or juice in our case. The, the bread is still, is still bread. There's nothing, there's nothing to it in one sense. It's not like it magically is transformed into something else. You put it under a microscope and you say, oh, this is... This is different now than it was. No, but when we, by faith, when we recognize, when we remember the body and blood of Christ, we partake in a spiritual experience of union with Christ in our hearts and our souls and our minds. And this spiritual reality of union, of participation, of koinonia with Christ, it's overpowering and it's awesome. And so what he says here is there's this joining, this fellowship, this sharing, participation with Christ at this meal. And notice it's something we share in together. 
We're joined together in this participation in Christ. There's, there's solidarity expressed in this meal. We're a fellowship of deepest bonds. We're joined to God vertically in Christ. We're joined to one another horizontally in faith and in love. And so this meal, this Lord's Supper, it's not just a meal. It's loaded with spiritual importance. So that's the first jab. Then he gives another example, the second jab. And he says, and he asks, what about the sacrificial meal of the Jews? Now remember at this time, the temple in Jerusalem is still standing. There are, there are sacrifices being carried out daily. Thousands of Jews from all over Palestine and all over the world that are traveling there and offering sacrifices to the Lord at, at Passover. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem to, to celebrate this meal together. And so what about these sacrifices? Is, is there anything more going on there? Of course there is. And when the Old Testament talks about these sacrificial meals, just what is some of the language, just think of some of the language that's used. Just one example, Deuteronomy 14, 26, speaking about these meals, you shall eat there before the Lord in the presence of the Lord, your God, and rejoice you and all your household. They're coming into God's very presence and communion with Him and so closeness to Him by faith as they eat and they meet with Him and He blesses them in that time of eating. So Paul puts it this way, verse 18, just consider the people of Israel. Here's exhibit B, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants, koinonia, fellowship, sharing in the altar? I mean, when the lamb or goat was killed for them, it was a time when their sins were forgiven. It was a time when God drew especially near to His people. And so it was a meal, but it was much, much more than just a meal. So you see Paul's argument. These Christians in Corinth, they're just kind of trotting along happily into these pagan temples, and they're saying it's no big deal. There's no problem here. It's just a meal. It's no, no big deal. Paul says, no, it's not just a meal. It is a very big deal. I mean, when Christians eat together, it's not only a meal, it's full of spiritual of, of significance. And, and when the Jews ate together, it wasn't, they weren't just meals. They were, this was full of spiritual significance. And so he's building the case to make this point. When people meet and eat together in, the, in these pagan temples to worship their gods, it's never just a meal. It's full of spiritual significance. Now, can you, just following this line of argument, can you think of any objection that they might raise to Paul's argument? Remember what we read earlier in Romans, in chapter 8, verse 4. I mean, this is this the Corinthians would say, well, hold on there, Paul. Wait just a second. You say that we share in communion with Christ in the Christian meal. We, we get that. That's fine. The Jews commune with God in their meals. That's fine. But this business about pagans communing with their gods, come on, Paul. They, 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 there are no other gods. Aphrodite, Zeus, Apollo, these the, the people have just made these up. They're fictional. They don't exist. How can you have communion with something that actually has no reality to it? So Paul's answer is very interesting and is very important. And so verse 19 to 20, he anticipates that objection. He, he anticipates that criticism and he answers it. Verse 19, what do I imply then? That, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? So I know that idols don't exist. I, 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 don't, I know you can't have communion with Apollo or Aphrodite I, because they're not actually real. They're, they're, there's nothing in and of themselves. And I know idol meat is just meat. It's not, there's not, it's not like it, anything changes when you 
cook it a certain way or prepare it a certain way. And if you eat in a pagan temple, it's not like the meat magically changes into something that's poisonous to you or something like that. I know that. So just no, no. Verse 20. What I'm implying is this, that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, friends, gods and goddesses and idols, they don't really exist. Yes, there's, there's no deities there. I know that, but demons do exist. Evil spirits under the control of Satan do exist. Apollo isn't real. Aphrodite isn't real. Zeus isn't real. But demons are real. And demons make use of pagan religion and pagan meals and pagan temples to, to enter people's minds' effect and to influence them. It's not no big deal. Why? Third reason. Because sharing with demons is a very big deal. Sharing with demons is a big deal. You, you become participants with demons, and he doesn't want that of them. That's the same word, koinonia. They become sharers, fellowshippers with demons. You, so when a person kneels before a statue, in one sense, a statue, in one sense you go, there's nothing there but wood or, mass, uh, or, or metal or, or, or plaster of Paris or something like that. And in another sense you go, no, there's spiritual reality behind it though. And that, and that reality is powers of darkness. Paul's alluding to Deuteronomy 32 here. That's that, that beautiful and powerful song of Moses. And so that Moses there is reflecting on this, this time in Israel when, when Israel turned to idols in the desert. And he says, verse 16, They stirred him, the Lord, to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods they, that had Come, that, that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. That's powerful. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. And this is what this is Paul's drawing on that, and he's making this point. You can't go into the temple, eat meat sacrificed to the idols there, and not participate, not share with something. And what you're sharing in is demonic. Evil spirits are manipulating those false religions. The evil spirits are involved in these occasions. This is their favorite workplace. And when Christians participate in these meals, they're opening themselves up to that, participating with demons. And Paul's telling them, this is a big deal. How can a believer in Christ participate in such a spiritually dangerous occasion? David Garland, a commentator, he says, they may think that they are simply joining a festive party, but in reality they're joining a party infested by Satan and forming an alliance with those who've crucified the Son of God. They cannot dismiss these meals as, simply, as, as a simply casual, meaningless social repast any more than they could dismiss a sexual relationship with a prostitute as a casual, meaningless tryst. This is Paul's point. The sacrifices of pagans involve spiritual union participation with demons. Whether they recognize that or not, and they certainly likely did not. But there's actual demonic participation. Therefore, Christians need to stay away. This is a big deal. Why? Any challenge to, to, the un, to our unmixed loyalty to Christ, it always has demonic involvement behind it. So this is the third, fourth reason 
Fourth reason why this unmixed loyalty to Christ is a big deal, and it's this, is because provoking the Lord to jealousy is a big deal. Provoking the Lord to jealousy is a big deal. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. The Greek is very emphatic here. You're, you're not able to do this. There, there are mutually exclusive realities here. Syncretism's a lie. Christ is Lord of all. You can't do this. Then he, then he concludes with these two rhetorical questions. Verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? I mean, the Lord's not, and the answer, of course, is, is a resounding no. The Lord is, he will not share his bride with another. He is righteously jealous. Exodus 34, his very name is jealous. And, and so God demands that he be without rival. And then he asks the question, are we stronger than he? Now, any two-year-old that has any awareness of what the Bible teaches can answer that, or just in, the con in his conscience. Of course we're not stronger than God. But what's his point in these questions? It's, it's crazy to act as if you can do your own thing and God's not going to do anything about it. Job 9.4, who has defied the Lord without harm? So this is another reason that Paul, as he's building this case, you, your, your loyalty to Christ, it can't be it can't be mixed up with this, with this loyalty to demons and with the participation with idolatry. No, 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 because the Lord is jealous. He is jealous and with holy jealousy. Now the question for us, how in the world does this apply to us today? I mean, really, it's easy to excuse ourselves because we are, we, we, we are, we are modern people. And so there's, there's no immediate parallel, I suppose, um, to pagan feasts in Corinth. Uh, now, I'd be interested, and maybe some of you would have some thoughts and ideas of, of what modern parallels might look like or might be, but we, we don't bow down to graven images. We're not going to the pagan temples to have meals, so we don't have idols, right? Well, no, wrong. We talked at length about this last week because, we, we, again, we remember what an idol is. Anything that takes the place of God in our, in our heart, in our, in our heart's affections, in our trust, in our life, and so those functional saviors, as Keller says, something you live for, you can't live without. And so idolatry, it is at the root of all of our sin problems and sin patterns. The New Testament makes this very clear. It's, the whole Bible does. Sin is, listen, sin is what we do when we don't think Jesus Christ is enough. That's what we do. Some idol is at the root of all of our sins. And so we're called, we're called to flee idolatry because Loyalty to Christ is to be this exclusive loyalty. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. We're to glorify God with our body. So this is a big deal, and we have to stop living like it's not. There's spiritual demonic forces even at work here. These demonic influences, listen, they're, I know we don't think like this, but they're more common than we, and ordinary and more dangerous than most of us realize. These aren't just in the third world, you know, with witch doctors and the, you know, literate tribes people, and they have their kind of voodoo religions or something like that. They are alive in our own society and culture. And, and their MO is to work in, in the very normal ways, not in the ex crazy, extreme sort of ways. But anytime there's idolatry involved, which I hope we understand now is, is all over our life, there's participation of demons. C.S. Lewis has some wise words at the beginning of, of his preface to the screw tape letters. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So you can see this point. One is the error of people who don't believe in the devil or demons and think this, there's no, no, no activity. The other is the error of thinking those, uh, you can think of nothing else but the devil and demons. And both, one is bad, as bad as the other is what Lewis is saying. So I, I think this is a needing, needed warning for us, church. It can, can be rather than materialistic in this way. And Satan is alive. He's powerful. He, is, he has his agents, his spirits, and they're rampaging the world and causing all kinds of damage to human souls. And most people are unaware of them. Many Christians are, are unaware. Remember Peter's words in 1 Timothy 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is clear clear teaching in Scripture. I've picked up a wonderful book this week, and I'm just starting reading it by David Pallison on spiritual warfare, his last book that's been, been published. And, and, and one of the things he talks about, it's, it's not the focus of Scripture, demonic involvement, but at times Scripture peels back and pulls back the curtain and we get to see what's happening behind the scenes. And that's what, that's what we find here in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's word to us, I don't want you to be participants with demons, saying that's a possibility. It's a startling possibility. And for the Corinthians, this means stop attending meals in the temples. I wonder what that would what that means for us, church. I think the, I think the word that's key is there in verse 14, and it's the imperative. It's flee from idolatry. The application is not look for demons in your life and find them and identify them and cast them out or or, or do something like that. That's not the point. That's not the focus. He's, he's pulling back the curtain to say, this is going, this is, this is the severity of what's going on. But the focus, he's saying, don't worry about the demons. Don't obsess about demons. Don't let that be the burden to you. What I want you to do is you stay away from idols. It's, 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 that's what's involved. It, it, demons love to attach themselves to idols. Why? Because Satan's goal is to draw our attention away from and our worship from and our trust from Jesus Christ alone. That's his goal, is to take our eyes, take our focus off of Christ. And that's what idolatry essentially is. Now to close, just think of, of Christ here in, in, this, in this light. How did his ministry begin? He's tempted in the wilderness by the devil himself. Remember the third temptation in particular. He, the devil takes him up on this high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And then he says to him, all of these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, did Satan really have all the kingdoms of the world to offer Jesus? No. He's a liar. He's a father of lies. He didn't have it. He, he, the, the devil he will gladly exaggerate, exaggerate what he can offer in order to to get what he wants. He still does this. But this temptation, it shows that the devil did have some grasp of Christ's ultimate purpose. And in, in Psalm 2, we find this. this the Father echoes this uh, his promise at, at Jesus' baptism. When, but Psalm 2 says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And so, so Satan's temptation there is, why, why go through all of that suffering to reach your goal? Uh, when, when you can do it quickly by worshiping me. It's a shortcut. A kingdom without a cross. What's Jesus' response? Go, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. 
worship anything or anyone other than God, any created thing like the devil, is idolatry. Jesus was faced with this demonic temptation to worship a created thing. That's idolatry. And he resisted. He resisted to the point of death. Jesus knows the battle. He fought it fiercely to the end, church. So, so he was tested like we are, and is a sympathetic high priest. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4, if you will. And, he, and so he doesn't just roll his eyes at our struggle with temptation and sin and say, uh, here they go again. No, he cares. Verse 14, Hebrews chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Brothers and sisters, God is for us. He, we have a great high priest. He is alive. He, he is in God's presence. He is the Son of God. He is sympathetic. So hold fast to your hope. Verse 16, let us then, in light of this reality, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, you need help. I need help. We, we are not God. We are weak. We are needy. We have confusion. We have all kinds of limitations. We need help. And here's the challenge. We're, we're not just weak and needy. We are sinful. We have sins. And so deep down, you and I know that the help that we need, we don't deserve. So we feel trapped. We can feel trapped. And, and we, need to we, we, we need to live our lives. We need to look to death in the face. We need to care for our families. We need to fight loneliness and to battle sickness and to trust God to provide and to fight sin. We need to do these things. But I don't deserve the help that I need. So what can we do? Well, sometimes when we begin to think like that, we can, we can kind of try to act like Superman and, and, and just live and pretend as if, as if we don't need any help. There are Christians that, that, that attempt that for a season and may appear to have success at that. Or we could go the other extreme and just give up and surrender the fight against temptation and sin and just be just kind of drown in despair. But what is God makes a declaration over our hopeless state. Jesus Christ became a high priest to shatter despair with hope. He came to humble the superman or the superwoman. And he came to rescue the one who's drowning in despair. Yes, we all need help. Yes, we don't deserve the help that we need, but we can say no to despair and hopelessness. Why? Because we have a great high priest. The terrifying throne of God is a throne of grace for those who are in Christ. So the help we need and get at the throne is grace and mercy to help in our time of need. We need grace to help. We don't, not, des not deserved help, but gracious help. Believer, no matter what temptation or sin has ensnared you today, to draw your heart away from, from that unmixed loyalty to Christ that we're called to, that we've been redeemed for, that we're commanded 
You are not trapped. You are not stuck. Don't believe the lie. That's of the enemy. You need help. You don't deserve the help you need, but it is available to you because of Christ. And so look to Jesus, your high priest, who's been tempted every way as you are, including idolatry, demonic temptation to idolatry, and draw near to God through Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Thank you for this passage. We pray that, you would, you would t- that we would take it to heart. We pray that you would sanctify us with your truth, for your word is truth. Lord, we ask us as Jesus taught us to pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but you would deliver us from evil. And we pray that you'd help us to see and understand where our idols may be, and then you'd help us to separate from them, to flee from idolatry. We, we pray that as a church, you would help us to do this together. We pray that you give us greater delight as an assembly and in, 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 in earnestness about participating in and sharing in the body and blood of our Savior when we take the Lord's Supper together, even next time. Thank you again for your word. Well, we do pray for... for any in our flock or for loved ones who are, who are really ensnared by demonic idolatry. We pray that you would deliver them. We pray that the Son would set them free so that they might be free indeed. You are able, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.